Welcome, friends. Today we're going to be talking about, yet again, another murder that I feel could have been prevented and or handled a lot better if the police and people in charge would have listened a little easier and taken a little bit more seriously. The election is tomorrow. I'm incredibly stressed. feel a little paralyzed, so let's talk about some horrible things. This week's case is the Cheshire murders, and this was a murder case that kind of popped up in my Netflix queue every once in a while because there's, I think, at least one or two documentaries on it. I have watched most of the first one. In addition, this was just something I had heard about here and there. It's relatively modern. It happened in 2007, but for some reason, it never struck me as being interesting enough for me to look into it. And I went kind of deeper into this case on just a Google search and found out there is so much that I didn't know. And it actually gets really, really horrible and also very, very interesting. So today we're going to talk about the Cheshire murders. These happened on July 23rd, 2007. But before we get into it, we're going to take a little break, prepare ourselves and talk a little bit about the morning of that day. Okay, and we're back. Let's get started. The morning of July 22nd, 2007 was a pretty average normal summer day. The Petit family was heading out to their respective duties for that day, and that included the mother and her daughter Michaela, or KK, going to the store. They had just returned from church, so that meant it was a Sunday, obviously, and they wanted to get a couple things for dinner that night because KK really loved to cook. She was around 11 years old, and she was already a budding chef. She was that kind of person in the kitchen putting stuff together while her mom was making the actual dinner, and a lot of the times her stuff came out good enough, so her mom really, really encouraged this kind of hobby of hers. Her mom was Jennifer Hawk Petit, and she was married to Dr. William Bill Petit Jr. They were both, respectively, her being 48 and him being 50 years old. They also had an older daughter named Haley. She was 17 at the time. And they all live together still in Cheshire, Connecticut. They were definitely, I mean this in the best way possible, very waspy. Even by the pictures, I would look at them and be like, oh my goodness, Connecticut, yes. They were definitely upper middle class, but they weren't rich by any means. As they browsed through the aisles, you'll see surveillance footage, I'll post it, and it's simply, it looks like a Safeway or any other store, I don't remember which one it is. But it looks like they're just, you know, walking around with a cart and um, just shopping like normal. Also in that store, however, were two predators watching them. Joshua Komisarjewski and Stephen Hayes were in that store shopping, and they were in fact searching for a victim. Now, obviously, Jennifer and her daughter Michaela had no idea that they were being kind of scouted by these two absolute pervert creeps, so they just went along their day. And these two creeps followed them to their house. <laughs> the rest of the day ensues is honestly one of the most horrible and terrible things I've read and researched in a really long time. And I used to go to the library when I was a kid, check out a computer to use, go on the incognito tab, and look up things on Rotten.com. So this is pretty fucked up. I'm going to get into that more later, but let's talk about the background of the family before we even give these two pieces of shit more of our time. Dr. William Petit met his wife, Jennifer Hawk Petit, when he was actually working in medical school and he was working as a third-year medical student and her as a nurse. They apparently locked eyes immediately and definitely hit it off. 
I love reading this story and hearing about it because apparently Bill went up to her and was like, oh, no, no, let me do it. Reference to taking a patient's blood pressure because he was kind of know-it-all. And Jennifer just let him go, let him fail, and then showed him how to do it the right way, which I think is a very sly, very cool move. They went on to marry, and they had two girls. Their oldest, Haley, was born in 1989 and Michaela in 1995. Jennifer, the mother, was actually diagnosed with MS in 1998, and although Haley was only nine, she was really, really attached to her mom, and she was super scared of this, so to kind of channel all of that nervousness, she decided to start a nonprofit, which is not something most nine-year-olds think of. So she wrote a bunch of letters to family and friends sponsoring her for this huge walk, and she named it Haley's Hope, and it was essentially a Connecticut MS walk. I've heard of these before. You give people a certain amount of, like, dollars per mile. And over the course of the seven years, Haley walked for her mother. She raised $55,000, which is pretty dope. She was wildly accomplished for a 17-year-old. I cannot believe it. I mean, I know we had very different backgrounds, but damn. While she was really reserved and quiet, she definitely put this energy into her future. She was planning on attending Dartmouth, which is where her father went, in the September semester. And she was going for medicine as well. The youngest one, Michaela or KK, who's 11, again, really, really liked cooking. But she also really liked these walks, and she attended on taking over the entire kind of nonprofit when her sister moved on to college because she was just around the age that it started to, so it was kind of perfect. And after the last seven years, it had become pretty popular among the small town, so it definitely would have been a really good opportunity. There was nothing really special about them that stuck out to them that day when they were in the grocery store shopping for pasta ingredients, except for the fact that the two people watching them were pedophiles. It's now known, given the deposition, that they spotted Michaela in the store and actually followed Jennifer Hawk Petit home because they wanted Michaela. Let's go over what happened the morning and the day of July 22nd, 2007. Our piece of shit players today are Joshua Komisarjewski and Stephen Hayes. Joshua Komisarjewski and Stephen Hayes were pretty dissimilar in age. Komis Arjewski was in his early 20s, while Stephen Hayes was in his late 40s or early 50s. They met when they were living at a halfway house, and they were both released from prison around the same time, and neither of them had a job. They, I think, just naturally attracted each other. Each of the men independently would kind of go in between job to job, so finding consistent income was always an issue. However, Komis Arjewski's offenses were kind of being a professional cat burglar. He had done several burglaries in the area and gotten away with a lot of money on many occasions. Although the things he stole were sometimes only valuables, still, they were highly valuable. He would brag all the time what good of a thief he was and what good he was at like lock picking locks and doing things like that. Stephen Hayes was put away for literally the same crime. I don't understand the difference and apologies for my ignorance, but and I quote, Hayes had served a three to five year sentence for third degree burglary and Komis Arjewski had served four and a half years for burglary in the second degree. That's worded essentially just second and third degree burglary. Burglary? Christ. Burglary. So these two men were unfortunate evil BFFs right off the bat. Komis Arjewski did have a girlfriend, however. She was only 18 years old, and her father 
hated Joshua and said, and I agree, that he's a pedophile. And that's pretty much the only reason that he dated his daughter. His 18-year-old girlfriend, Caroline, looked so much younger. There's pictures of her online, and she looks at the time when she was 18 like she could have been 14. So that unfortunately tracks. Caroline now knows that she was targeted, but obviously at the time she was wrapped up in love, so they ran away to Arkansas, but Komoserjewski's family pretty much brought him back, and him and Steven rekindled their little friendship relationship after they met each other at a 12-step meeting, and they pretty much lamented at how neither of them had any money and how Joshua really needed to get his girlfriend Caroline back to Connecticut because she was, quote-unquote, stuck in Arkansas. The men hatched a plan to essentially get money quick, which was to start robbing shit again. But their burglary skills were really, really rusty, so they did a couple test runs. They apparently went and scouted a neighborhood and broke into a couple homes just to see if they could. Komas Arjewski was the more skilled burglar, so he would be the one going and breaking into the houses, and Stephen Hayes would be in the car essentially waiting back. They broke into a house or two before they realized it was way too simple. This neighborhood was super quiet, it was a really small town, and it was upper middle class. There was a lot of options, and there was not a whole lot of security. On the evening of July 22nd, 2007, Stephen Hayes texted Joshua, and I quote, I'm chomping at the bid to get started. He was saying that he really needed a margarita. Joshua responded back, I just gotta put my kid to bed and I'll be ready, which shocked me that he had reproduced at all. Now, I think I said this earlier, but the guys had essentially ran around the neighborhood earlier and scouted. Joshua saw Michaela, or KK, in the grocery store with Jennifer Hawk Petit that day. He picked her, because he is a pedophile, and they followed them to the nice neighborhood that they were scouting. When it came time for them to pick a home for them to rob, they of course actually picked Michaela's house because that's what Joshua wanted. They thought it would be really easy because none of the houses around had super high security, and while this only was 13 years ago, there definitely wasn't the highest camera quality in 2007. The men then drove to a local Walmart and bought rope and a rifle, which is just the most American thing I can ever think of. They drove around hyping themselves up, and they arrived to the Petit household at 3 a.m. on the morning of July 23rd, 2007. The Petit family were asleep, having no idea that their life was just about to be ripped out from under them. Let's take a quick break, and we'll continue. Okay, I took way too long of a break, got distracted by my phone, and went down a rabbit hole. We're back. The morning of July 23rd... The men arrived at the Petit household at around 3 a.m. They got in through an open window, and Mr. Petit had actually fallen asleep on the couch. This wasn't necessarily the living room, but more so the sunroom, and as someone whose body is technically 28 but soul is 900, I fall asleep on the couch almost every single fucking night, so this really wasn't anything weird. The men obviously didn't expect Bill to be laying on the couch. They expected to be able to kind of stake out the house for a little bit and wait inside, which is... But Bill was obviously sleeping on the couch, so Joshua grabbed a baseball bat and whacked him on the head with it. Dr. Petit went down, head gaping and blood everywhere. He was super disoriented and obviously in shock. Hazen Komazarjewski tied him up and took him down to the basement where they tied him to a pole and kind of stacked a bunch of shit around him. 
it almost looks like they tried to make a chair out of like the bags and old pillows and stuff that was in the basement to try and like make him more comfortable, which is kind of counterintuitive to their plan. Haley was asleep in her bed, and Jennifer and KK were actually asleep in the parents' bed. After waking the family up, they tied the three women up, put pillowcases over their heads, returned Michaela, the youngest, to her room, and bound each of the women to their beds. So we have three separate women in three separate rooms now. One of them went to a nearby gas station to fill up a couple of gallons of gasoline, and the other literally just sat in the living room and drank beer. To be clear, Hayes, the older one, was the one who went to get the gas in the first place. As the men kind of scouted the house, as it was initially supposed to just be a robbery, they were super disappointed. I think these men had some, like, pirate cartoonish idea of what people keep in their house, but there wasn't, like, jewels or money like they had expected. There wasn't even a safe. After all of this rummaging, they initially just settled on the checkbook they found in Jennifer's purse. Their plan was to wake Jennifer up, threaten her with her family, take her to the bank to withdraw money, bring her back, and that would really be the end of it. Unfortunately, that's not how that played out. When 9am finally arrived, the men untied Jennifer, instructed her to grab her things, get dressed, as they were heading down to the bank. Jennifer... She honestly did the best she could, and one might say she did too well. It'll make sense soon. Their surveillance showing Jennifer in the bank, kind of calmly, slowly trying to explain to the teller what's happening. And the account goes like this. Joshua Komisarjewski stayed back at the house while Stephen Hayes drove the car and brought Jennifer Hawk Petit to the bank. Stephen pretty much told her, I'm going to kill your daughters if you don't give me $15,000. So Jennifer walked up to the bank teller with her check book in hand fully intending on giving this man whatever he needed because she just wanted her family back. However, tellers are kind of instructed and taught how to look out for these things, so the bank teller knew something was up. After asking for Jennifer's ID, she realized that she didn't have it with her. It was back at the house. After asking for her husband's ID, she couldn't provide that either. She ended up just telling the teller what was happening. She told them, there's someone threatening my family. Someone has them hostage. I need this to release them. Of course, Jennifer Hawk Petit told the bank teller and the bank manager who came over that if alerting police was to happen, her whole family would die, but the bank can't really just do that, so they in fact did alert police. A quote from the branch manager, Mary Lyons, goes as follows. She explained to me that her family was being held, and as long as she got the money and got back to the house, everybody would be okay. I just knew from the look on her face and the look in her eyes that she was telling the truth. Her eyes told me, a look from one mom to another mom. And unquote. So the bank tellers actually did give her the money. I'm kind of shocked by this because I don't work at a bank. I've never worked at a bank. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I wouldn't have let her leave. I would have called the cops, kept her inside, and sent the cops to her house while we kept Stephen Hayes here. I don't understand why she was even given the money in the first place, but she was. Her and Stephen Hayes head back to the house, and Jennifer thinks this is the end of it. She thinks, what's $15,000 for my family? I don't fucking care. She probably didn't think the word fucking, but I'm adding it in there for spice. This is where our story takes one of about ten really, really dark turns. When Stephen Hayes and Jennifer re-entered the house, 
Joshua informed them that he had sexually assaulted the 11-year-old girl, Michaela. Not only did he do this, he performed oral sex on the child and took photos of this act, all while she was tied up with a pillowcase over her head. He posed her while he masturbated and snapped photos of that as well. During the trial, Joshua would say that there was no penetration, but autopsy shows that he did in fact rape her. Because Joshua is a baby dick piece of shit, he told Stephen Hayes, the older criminal, that it was time to, and I quote, square things up by raping Jennifer, the mother. And Hayes did just that. I don't know if, why, or how Haley was spared, but she's not mentioned in any of the sexual assaults. While Bill was downstairs attempting to regain consciousness, he was hearing a thump, thump, thump above him. He would later tell police that this kind of kept him awake, and that he thinks it's the reason why he was able to not fall asleep and kind of get a worse concussion or brain damage. He soon kind of snapped out of this unconscious fog and the thumps upstairs, the noise around, the ringing in his head, he knew he had to get out and get help for his family, so William or Bill Petit ran out the back basement stairs bleeding from the head and one of his neighbors actually saw him. The neighbor who saw him was a retired teacher and had been their neighbor for 18 years. He was looking out his kitchen window and just saw a man kind of running, stumbling, covered in blood. There's a quote from the newspaper that says, I didn't recognize him at first. His face was banged up. It just didn't look like Bill. The only words that Bill could utter were, Dave, Dave, call 911. And Dave did. He looked up. He saw a police officer walking up the driveway with his rifle down and thought, what the fuck? Stephen Hayes heard this commotion and, in, I guess, the stress of it all, went into a rage and strangled Jennifer right there on the floor. One of the more heartbreaking parts of this case, among, again, like, ten of them, is that Dr. Petit didn't realize that thump, thump, thump that was waking him up was the sound of his wife being raped and what would turn into her murder. While Dr. Petit ran out and asked his neighbor Dave for help in the middle of all of this commotion, Stephen Hayes picked up the containers of gasoline and started pouring them all over the house. He was telling Joshua to pick up a can of gasoline and that he needed to destroy the evidence of his crimes because now it wasn't just a robbery. Now, because of both of these men's actions, because they're both pieces of shit, it was now a sexual assault, a rape, a murder, a child molestation, and I'm sure a lot more. The men started pouring the gasoline directly on Jennifer in the middle of the living room and brought the gasoline upstairs, pouring it all over the two daughters. Yeah. I had to take a moment when I read and heard that, too. Stephen Hayes poured gasoline on 11-year-old Michaela and 17-year-old Haley, as well as all over the body of Jennifer Hawk Petit. Seconds later, one of the men picked up a match, lit the house on fire, and started to flee. Again, to this day, neither men take credit for who lit the match, who picked up the gasoline. It doesn't really matter who, because neither of them stopped it. In the few minutes it took Dr. Petit to run across the street, the police had already set up a perimeter at the Hawk Petit house. Now, here's where my fingers are on my temples. There's a sandwich next to me for moral support. The police knew from the actual call at the bank from the teller and the manager what was happening. 
They knew that they had people in the house. They knew they were hostages. They knew they were tied up, and they knew the dad was incapacitated. Jennifer obviously didn't know that he had been hit with a baseball bat, but she saw the blood trail and she couldn't find her husband, so it doesn't really take a genius to put two and two together on that end. The police apparently didn't think this was a high DEFCON level enough situation because they simply set up a perimeter, walked around, and kicked rocks. I think I've stated my views in the police force thus far in the podcast, but the lack of urgency and tact that they had with this is asinine. There was a decent amount of squad cars, I think two or three, and maybe four cops outside from the photos that I've seen. And yeah, there are photos of the actual police perimeter because you have to take photos of crime scenes and... Before this was even a crime scene, it was a hostage situation. So you have documentation the entire time of this quote-unquote hostage situation, and they did not have any urgency behind it. This went way worse than I think it could have and should have. Now, since this is happening so quickly, I know our timeline seems like it's been stretched, but it actually hasn't. While the men were dousing his family even tied up in their beds, Dr. Petit was across the street speaking to police officers and Dave, the neighbor who had called, alerted the police and Dr. Petit to the smoke and the flames because they could be seen from the back of the house. There are pictures I'll post, but you can see that clearly only one area of the house was set on fire and the firefighters and fire department did get there as fast as they could. However, damage was already done. After the last five minutes we've been talking about here, which includes Dr. Petit escaping out the basement, Dave calling the police, the police slowly arriving from the former bank manager's call, Stephen Hayes and Joshua Komosarjewski lighting the family on fire, raping and murdering them, and now the men are going to attempt to escape in the family's car, even though they can see the police right outside. The two of them jumped into the SUV, ran it into reverse, and then just tried to drive away, and of course they ran into a police car while trying to escape. They were quickly apprehended, but the house was ablaze. When the men were asked who else was in the house, if anybody else was in the house, and what their names were, they simply didn't respond. After being, I'm sure, screamed at and or asked again, Hayes gave them a fake name and Komosarjewski relented and just gave them his real name. Joshua Komosarjewski also told them that there were three people inside and they needed to hurry if they wanted to save them. Also, kind of unrelated, I don't want to give this dude anything good, but he's the great-great-grandson of a Russian princess. I don't know if that means anything, but fun fact. When the firefighters arrived, there was no one else to save. The house was torched, top to bottom in the area. The police and the firefighters found Michaela still tied to the bed and Haley in the hallway of the staircase. Haley was a really strong athlete and during the fire she managed to free herself, but during the smoke inhalation and the fact that she was literally on fire, she collapsed and died. It's said that the girls died of smoke inhalation and while I'm sure that's true, there's no way you can simply die of smoke inhalation and not also be on fire. I think that we're just told it's smoke inhalation because the real truth is far too grim. Dr. Petit was escorted by ambulance to a hospital and had no idea his entire family had perished in the situation that had unfolded in simply five minutes. Now, let's take a little break, absorb that, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the case and we're also going to talk a little bit about some speculation. Hello, and we're back. 
So by now, we're into the early morning of July 23rd, 2007, and Mr. Petit has gotten taken to the hospital. The fire department have doused the flames. Joshua and Stephen have been taken into custody, and the police are surveying the damage. They call the coroner and bring in essentially an investigative team to look over the scene and follow the trail of arson. It's clear that Jennifer Hawk Petit, as we know, was strangled and raped before she was murdered. The origin of the fire is her body right there in the living room, and then it immediately spreads up the stairs and goes to the two girls' bedrooms. I cannot wrap my head around why these men would light two small girls' children, light two children on fire after sexually assaulting and raping one of them, killing their mother, all for, what, $15,000? They're in jail for the rest of their lives, so why did they have to light the house on fire? If their excuse was that they wanted to rid the area of their crimes, that doesn't make any fucking sense because it was in the middle of the day. They knew they would get caught. I think they just wanted to do something terrible. Now, let's talk about the fuzziness of the entire police situation. We now have audio recordings that prove some really stupid things transpired. When the police first got the call from that bank teller that Stephen Hayes had forced Jennifer to drive to the bank and that the family was being held, the police discussed whether they should send out one of their sergeants, Sergeant Chris Cole, to intercept the minivan because he was already kind of driving around. However, the police sergeants, and I quote, decided to not intercept them because they didn't know if what they were being told was accurate. That's right. They decided not to intercept the Chrysler minivan. We also have another audio recording that essentially details the police making a perimeter and knowing something bad was going inside, but not going in. Let's have a listen to those police radio calls. Second 911 from the bank. Apparently, uh, some family is tied up being held hostage and they're forcing the, a woman to go to the bank to withdraw a large amount of cash to pay the captors. Um, Jamie's here now. Basic information on it, but sounds like... Uh, might be in this for a little bit. All right, where is it? Uh, the lady, is that Bank of America, Don? The lady just left possibly with, with the captors up in a Chrysler Pacifica heading out Vespucci side. Do you want to put that on the air so we can... Yo, what do you want to do? Do you want to try to find that car, or what do you want to do? Right, we're going to put that on an air. Just left Bank of America. The captors might be in the car with her. Uh, Chrysler Pacifica. Yeah. Uh, apparently, she came into the bank. She tried to get some money out. The, one, of the, one of the accounts was in the husband's name, and then she says, well, my kids are at home tied up, so we don't know if they really are or if she was just trying to get money out of the bank at this point. Okay. So she, right. she, she, the, the car's at the house, from what I understand. The, the car is at the house. She got $15,000 in cash in three envelopes with $5,000 a piece. They're all strapped. So $15,000 and $50 bills. Okay, that was some of what I just explained, and the first audio call is a little bit more fuzzy than the other. Essentially, it's the police dispatch in between the phone calls discussing what is going on in real time. The police that were there in the little barricade that they were in had made contact with Joshua and Stephen, and they had alerted the other police around the barricades that they had entered the car which means that the perimeter was there long enough for them to light the entire house on fire and escape. 
And we actually have an audio recording of the police having a conversation with the hostage negotiator who was called in. And the audio has the police chief turning them down because they didn't need a hostage negotiator. Let's have a listen real quick. Hey, I need to know whether they want me in or not. I'm the hostage negotiator and I got paid. So, in case my editing skills aren't that amazing in post, you can hear the hostage negotiator pretty much saying, Hi, I was paged, do you need me? And the dispatcher, or I'm sorry, the police officer, literally said, No, not at this time. So, you have three women inside who you know are tied up, a man who has his head bleeding and gashed opened, a call from a bank that money was taken for literal ransom, but okay, go ahead, no hostage negotiator, go off. And because the crime happened so fast, we're 30 minutes into this podcast and the crime that took place, the murders at least, the setting of two children on fire while they were alive at least, only happened in five minutes. Stephen Hayes, during his, I guess, questioning, finally revealed what happened, and it grossly seems like he enjoyed telling the arresting officers and investigators what transpired. I swung and swung, then swung again. A look of stunned shock was in his eyes, quote-unquote. That was from Joshua as he recounted striking Bill Petit in the head. We, we know that Hayes wrote, like, a 40-letter manifesto of his crimes, and so did Komisarjewski, but they're very different. Joshua Komisarjewski literally sounds like such a white supremacist piece of shit. He pretty much thinks that he's God's gift to the green earth, and uh, I'll just read you a, a little snippet. All were compliant, he wrote. This time I took a risk, pulled the trigger, and the chamber was loaded. The petite family passed through their fears and into terror. It was captivating validating that this pain in meal was real. I was looking right as my personal demon, reflected back in their eyes. Haley is a fighter. She tried me time and time again to free herself. Dr. Petit is a coward. He ran away when he thought his life was threatened. He ran away to leave his wife and children to madmen. I was cheated of my retribution, and so was Steve. I am what I am. I make no excuses. I'm a criminal with a criminal mind. While he's right about being a criminal with a criminal mind, I read that word for word and some of it did make sense. He's definitely missing like contractions and certain words and I'm dyslexic and even that kind of fucked me up. The whole all were compliant thing, of course they were. They thought you were only going to rob them. And the fact that Haley was a fighter, no, she wasn't a fighter. She was just older. She was a child. I mean, you tied her family up, murdered her mother, and then raped her sister. So I, yeah, she was the oldest one. Of course she was the one who is able to get herself more free. And the fact that he called Dr. Petit a coward is such a baby dick move. It it honestly doesn't even need any more of my energy other than that. In the following months, a trial was set up for the men, and they were actually tried separately for the crimes. In the trial, we got a little bit more clear of a view of the timeline that transpired from both the police's side and from the criminal side, so let's look at what at least the trial tells us was the timeline. I'm going to start by the police's side because I just finished picking them apart, so let's see what transpired from their end. 
According to the testimony, Cheshire Police Officer Thomas Wright received a call about a home invasion, and apparently before he got to the scene, he went back to get a special vest and rifle and another officer to the scene. So because this, again, event transpired so quickly, that was precious time wasted. While Captain Thomas was grabbing his friend and his special vest, police announced over the radio that they didn't want any more police cruisers going by just because they didn't know whether it was a real situation or what situation it was. So the police officer actually parked a little bit away from the house and walked up through the backyard with his rifle and gave it to his fellow officer. That's when he saw Bill Petit, who was bleeding profusely from his head and who had gone over to his neighbor, Dave Simic, and the police instructed Dave and Bill to stay put. The doctors actually thought that William might have done this or caused this, so they thought he was a suspect at first. At this point, the police then called an ambulance. As the police officer radioed in to call an ambulance, he saw a tan car, an SUV, which we now know is the Petit's family vehicle, run over the lawn and, like, jump and head straight for the police officer's car and ram it head on. As this was happening, they saw the flames just erupting from the side of the house, and apparently it went from zero to a hundred very fast. The flames were too big for the police, and the fire department wasn't called yet. The department claims, and I quote, that they tried to get in front of the home, then around back. They searched for a ladder to try and break into an upstairs window, but they had no success. At that point, the fire department arrived, but their only job at that point was putting out the fire, not rescuing survivors. Because of the accelerant, the fire damage to the women who were alive and to the body of Jennifer Petit was very, very fast and, and very, very extensive because the fire was burning so hot and so fast. According to which police report you read, because yes, there is multiple, apparently the men decided to set the house on fire after they realized that the father had escaped. Or when he saw there was a police officer on the phone. Either one is essentially written down as being true. Now the question is, why didn't the police do anything? Because at this point, we know that in tandem, they saw a bloody man escape from the house, and they saw flames and, you know, an escape vehicle. And we come to find out later after the trial that the police were actually ordered not to come into the house. Because of that first 911 call and the fact that Jennifer Hawk Petit was so calm in telling the bank teller and manager that her family was in fact being held hostage and they were in grave danger, because she was so calm about it, they thought she was in on it. They didn't think that they were in that grave of danger. They didn't take it seriously. They didn't do their duty and they didn't do a good enough job. Three people died because of it. We now know that one of the police officers, a Lieutenant Joseph Mazzini, got to the house before Jennifer and Stephen got back from the bank, but he was again told not to do anything, not to go in the house, because they thought she was somehow in on it. Only 33 minutes was passed and elapsed from the time that the initial 911 call was made from the bank to the time that Mr. Petit erupted and so did the fire from the house. Cheshire police haven't ponied up or offered any sort of explanation or apologies or anything to the family or us asking what happened, why it happened, and why their officers are so incompetently trained. 
The police officers did hold a news conference because the Petit and Hawk families were really, really despondent, especially Jennifer's mother. She just, she is such a trooper. She is very, very confused. She's very concerned and she wants them to be held accountable. In that press conference, the Cheshire police literally just praised their first responders that day and said how good of a job they did, even though a tragedy was unavoidable. During the trials of Komisajewski and Stephen Hayes, the jurors were actually offered counseling and many of them had to excuse themselves during the trial because the evidence, the photos of little Michaela, the bodies, the photos, everything was too grotesque for a lot of them to be able to take. The trials for the men were in October 2010, and while the two gentlemen were both given life sentences, six or seven each, I believe, the death penalty was originally offered on the table. All of the jurors but one offered Stephen Hayes death. <laughs> Unfortunately, he got life in prison, but Joshua Komisarjewski did in fact get the death penalty, and there is a quote from his manifesto that I'll read, and I'm just putting a trigger warning on it. It's, it's not detailed, but it's just gross. Quote, referring to the 11-year-old girl, Komisarjewski wrote, I tasted her fear after she was dead, I took blackmail pictures of her body, and I intended to use these against Mr. and Mrs. Petit. What I was not prepared for was my demons getting the better of me. How could I have gone oh so far so wrong? Michaela, angel of my nightmares, my pain to yours does not compare. You call me from beyond the grave, if only I could simply lie here and will myself to die. Michaela, Haley, and Jennifer, forgive me. I am damned. I can't believe I lost control. I hate myself. I love myself. I stand condemned. My forthcoming death sentence will be an action of mercy. Unquote. First of all, it's disgusting. It's just so icky. Just First of all, an 11-year-old girl is not calling you from your nightmares. That's your mental illness, and it's probably your sleep paralysis demon. That's all, that's all my brain can come up with. However, right after their October 2010 trial, I'm talking months after, the death penalty in Connecticut was overturned, so Komar Sajewski's trial was reduced, or I guess exchanged, for a seven consecutive life sentences. Both gentlemen are serving their time in a prison wildly close to my hometown, so y'all from back there, sorry. Hayes apologized to the Petit family, and we obviously know that Komisarjewski did not, so I'll read Hayes' apology. Quote, I oftentimes look at Dr. Petit and became sick to my stomach, knowing what he has been through and what he continues to go through to this day. There's not a moment that goes by that does not weigh on my mind, especially since he suffered due to my actions. My suffering is meaningless compared to that of Dr. Petit. Death for me will be a welcome relief, and I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those who I have hurt. I am deeply sorry for what I have done and the pain that I have caused. My actions have hurt so many people, affected so many lives, and caused so much pain. I am tormented and have nightmares about what happened in that house. Unquote. And this is in the final testimony of the trial. I'll also read uh, Komasarchevsky's, which is much smaller. Quote, I will never find peace within. My life will be a continuation of the hurt I caused. The clock is now ticking and I owe a debt I cannot repay. It's a surreal experience being condemned to die. Unquote. 
All right. There's honestly not much to unpack here, aside from the fact that both of them are clearly psychopaths and or sociopaths with a narcissistic complex. Everything about that is just me, me, me. Stephen Hayes, while it does sound a little bit more genuine, to me at least, it sounds very vanilla. I, I mean it sounds like an AI robot could have written the apology letter. It sounds like if I had asked my college professor to help me write an apology letter. It doesn't sound genuine. It, it just sounds manufactured to me. I don't know how Dr. Petit feels about it. I don't know if he'd rather have no apology, but if it were me, I'd rather just have nothing. As the men were sentenced and went through their lives in the prison system, Stephen Hayes has come out as transgender and is on hormone therapy. I'm not going to go into that any deeper, that if it is true, fine. If it's not, how fucking dare you use a beautiful community to garner any sort of sympathy for the fact that you're a murderous fucking psychopath. Also in that time, Joshua Karmasajewski has tried to reappeal his trial, pretty much saying that he had wrong representation, which is bullshit. In 2017, and I quote, the jury selection was a circus and ruined Komosarjevsky's chances for a fair trial. Also, correction fairy here, it was October 2019. It was just last year that he tried to overturn his conviction. And it's also become clear that Komosarjevsky fully blames Hayes for lighting the house on fire now, so that's nice. He remains a coward. So after all this, the men are going to be locked up for the rest of their lives. Both of them are still serving their six to seven year life sentences. The appeal for a new trial was immediately and thankfully rejected because bullshit. So the psychology of these two is just honestly really weird to me. Komosarjevsky has such a god complex and the fact that he calls himself a cat burglar is like, were you reading books from the 1920s <laughs> like all of your life? He also places the blame for his actions on his past. While he did have a really traumatic past, I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm saying that other people with traumatic pasts don't rape, murder, and burn alive an entire family. Komosarjevsky alleged that he was sexually abused by his teenage foster brother uh, when he was really, really young. And his parents were super religious, so he felt like he couldn't tell anybody. Foster brother apparently had moved out, and at 14 he was raped again by someone who was quote-unquote a very important friend. After this, he started using crystal meth really heavily, and it was the year that he found out that he was adopted. Apparently, he didn't know that he was adopted, and it came as quite a shock and a bit of an identity crisis to Joshua. As does most of our famous murderers here, he also had a history of recurrent childhood concussions. So three for three not going in his favor. Again, a lot of people have horrific childhoods, and a lot of people don't go on to do the crimes that he did. In an even more shocking revelation is, we know Joshua and Stephen met when they were out at a halfway house when they got out of prison. We know that they were both in prison for burglary. What we don't know is that they had just gotten out, at least Komosarjevsky, three months before they decimated the Petit family. Part of the reason why he got paroled is because his nice white family went into court and told the judge and everybody there that the crimes weighed so heavily on them and that he was a good Christian boy and that he was finding his path to God. Komosarjevsky's ex-girlfriend, Caroline, who, again, was 18 at the time that he was in his mid-20s and who he shares his daughter with, said that he joked about his role in the Petit murders and bragged about how difficult it was to take down Dr. Petit and how 
big he was and how like hitting him with a baseball bat was hard. And he also laughed several times during it, which sounds gross. As far as Caroline and Commissar Jeffsky go, as far as I've read, they're no longer in contact and she is aware that she was also a victim. In the case of Stephen Hayes' psychology, it's a little bit different. According to Stephen Hayes' younger brothers, they kind of hated him. Apparently, he was really abusive towards them and liked torturing them and doing mean shit just for fun. Now, they had a really abusive father as well, and when the kids did something bad, their father would force them to pretty much fight until one of them confessed to the offense. He nicknamed it duking it out. And then the dad would just beat the shit out of the kid who was guilty. The mother in all this was depressed and addicted to alcohol at the time, and she finally took her children and left, but the damage was done. By 14, Hayes was smoking a lot of weed, but didn't have any money to pay for it, so he just started stealing shit to pay for the weed, and his parents thought that putting him, or his mother at least, in a psychiatric hospital was the best situation for this. According to Hayes, during this time at the psychological hospital, he was sexually assaulted. I'm going to play a clip where the brothers actually talk about Stephen Hayes, and let's just listen. Attention, Detective Fran Budler to the Connecticut State Police. I give this statement to aid and assist those who now have the burden and huge responsibility of seeking justice. My earliest memories of Steve go back to age four or five. He presented himself as the apple of everyone's eye. What many people did not see was the brother I knew. Being young and naive, I arrived home from school in seventh grade. Stephen and his friends were using the oven to try out some marijuana. He turned on the burner on the stove. He told me it was really cool and put my hand over it. It's cool. You won't get hurt. As soon as I put my hand over the burner, he pushed my hand onto the hot burner. I had ring scars that lasted for months. To say there hasn't been a history of violence, well, this should, this should serve to say the predisposition was there. It was always there. And we're back. I just wanted to include that clip because I found it really interesting that Stephen's brothers pretty much not threw him under the bus because he exactly deserved what was said about him. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll have a little conclusion and end with a bright spot. All right. And we're back. So the aftermath of the murders and the trials and all the confession put a gaping wound in Cheshire that honestly will never heal. A family was ripped out from under them so heinously that it's almost hard to read, let alone what the jurors, trial members, witnesses had to go through during that. Our bright spot, however, is that Bill Petit has found his little slice of happiness. Since that night in 2007, Bill is no longer a physician. He manages the Petit Family Foundation, and the main goals are as follows. Continue to raise and distribute funds to fulfill our mission to help educate young people, especially those with interest in science, to help support those with chronic illness, to help protect those affected by violence. I'm not sure how the funds are distributed or what it is, but it seems like a wonderful nonprofit. More charitable organizations have been founded since the murders, and one of the more popular ones is Cheshire's Light of Hope. It was formed by Jennifer Walsh and her husband, their Cheshire residents. Luminaries are placed on each street of the town, and it takes place every year. The point of the event is to bring locals together so they can get to know one another and they can all develop a little bit stronger community. 
The first year it went to Bill Petit and the Petit Hawk family, but in the years since, the organization donates most the funds to social services, food pantries, things like that. In 2012, Bill Petit married Christine Palouf, and he met her while she was volunteering for the Petit Family Foundation. They actually have a son, and he was born pretty recently. Bill Petit has also become relatively involved in politics. Uh, he ran as a Connecticut state representative, and he ran representing Plainville and New Britain. At the final public service memorial hosted for the event, Bill was asked to speak, and he said to those in attendance, help a neighbor fight for a cause and love your family. So we'll end on that, motherfuckers. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and the sources are as follows. I use the blog Talk Murder With Me and The Medium, as well as True Crime Times. Uh, 14 Things You Didn't Know About the Cheshire Home Invasion Murders, which is by Ranker.com. I also used an ABC.com news article that was written by Annie Marie Dorning. Wikipedia, the good old OG. An article by the Hartford Courton by Dave Altamari, and that's the one listing the request for the new trial. <laughs> The Cheshire Murders documentary on Netflix and I think HBO. The SoundCloud account for the Cheshire Murders audio. Holla, thank you. And the podcast Crime Junkie and True Crime Garage for more information about the Petite Murders in podcast form. Thank you everybody for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. Be kind, rewind, and don't let the bastards get you down. Bye!